this week on the Backtable Podcast. I encourage everyone to sort of think outside the box, sort of try to break out of this stereotype, stop using words like pot, weed, dope, and start calling it cannabis or marijuana or, or hemp if you're referring to hemp. Like any substance, I mean, there's definitely potential for abuse here. It is intoxicating. But through knowledge and education, we can all learn about how it can be used properly for individual benefit on a very individual basis. So we have an educational series podcast, a Bill Bartholomew podcast called Inside Rhode Island Cannabis. We do a, a, some didactic type episodes there. We talk about the history of cannabis, very interesting stuff. And it's, it's all about just changing the perspective and not villainizing people who use cannabis for medicinal or, or even recreational, structured recreational purposes. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. First, a brief message from our sponsor. Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. Uh, I started taking AG1 because, quite frankly, uh, they advertise with us and send it to me for free, and uh, and because my friends Aaron and Sabine use it. But truth be told, you know, I've been taking it for you know probably seventy five days now, and uh, and I'm not stopping. Uh, you guys still taking it? Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. What's yeah. your experience been like? You know, I honestly I. Well, I thought that maybe it would taste bad or something when I first got it, and I really like the taste. So it's kind of a pleasant uh, drink for me in the morning, and I feel like I'm drinking something really healthy. It's really green. Yeah, I mean, it's literally that and coffee. I mean, I don't like Mike. We always joke that maybe there's something addictive in the athletic <laughs> greens itself, but um, it my body like like craves it every day, uh, and and it's easy to take. It's a great presentation. And, you know, I, I feel confident that I know I'm, I don't, you know, I don't need to eat a salad that day. Like I'm getting everything my body needs. No, totally. I agree. And, uh, for me, it, uh, is at least partially mental in the sense that like, you know, you, you see what's in this, you read the back of it. I'm like this, uh, hopefully will counteract the, the damage I'm doing to myself on a weekend of call. Uh, and, and I, <laughs> you know, I'd say this jokingly, I'm a success story. You don't actually have to be an athlete to get effects from athletic greens. So for me, it's more of an academic greens. Uh, it supports <laughs> mental health and clarity. <laughs> and you can tell from how, you know, my clarity right now that it's, it's working. <laughs> that's, that's great. I, I love that. It actually helps recovery from a bad weekend call, not necessarily a workout, but a bad weekend of call. No, you don't even yeah. have to work out. Yeah. I'm, I'm no. living proof. All um, that, all that food, all that junk food you eat on call, and you can at least say, tell yourself, okay, I, I had a, I had a three glasses of athletic greens over the weekend, like I'm, I'm, I'm okay. No, it's good, you know, and it's, it's, it's low calorie, low sugar, and to me, it tastes like, uh, a little bit like a pina colada without the alcohol, and so, you know, I, I get back on that horse on Monday after a weekend of call, and, and, and this makes me feel like I'm, <laughs> I'm getting close to my baseline. I'm getting a little bit better. But to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash backtablevi. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash backtablevi to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Now, back to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Back Table Podcast. Today, we have a very special episode, a topic that we've never covered before. 
but I'm excited to learn more about it from our guest as I do believe it has the potential to help a lot of people suffering from cancer, chronic pain, as well as a number of other ailments. We're going to be discussing medicinal cannabis. And with us, we have interventional radiologist and physician entrepreneur, Dr. Jason Iannicelli. Jason, real quick, did I just butcher your name? No, no, it's perfect, actually. I okay, Kudos. perfect. I, I would, <laughs> <laughs> thanks, man. Uh, <laughs> I practiced that before we started, uh, based off of the prior episode. Uh, for our audience, if anyone missed it, check out an oldie but goodie. This goes way back to episode 26 when we had Jason on with Chris Beck on Radio versus Femoral Access for Y90. Really excited to reconnect with Jason and have him back on for something very different topic wise. And this will probably go out on the innovation show as well as our vascular interventional show to spotlight Jason. Welcome, Jason. Welcome back to the show. Thanks, Aaron. Yeah, I'm excited to be back on, uh, obviously under much different circumstances than the first time around, but uh, hopefully equally as interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So let's jump into that. So it's been a few years since we had John. Tell us for our audience, maybe who didn't listen to episode 26, can you give us an idea of your background real quick and then kind of where you are now? Sure. So I'm born and raised Rhode Island native. I actually, from high school, matriculated at Brown in the program of liberal medical education, the PLME program, which is an eight-year program combining undergrad with medical school. So, you know, early interest in being a doctor, went through that program, chose to go into radiology, got involved in some radiology research with the local program at Brown University, and decided to do my residency at Brown as well. From there, I was very attracted to interventional radiology, mainly for the interventional oncology side of it. And I then went and did my fellowship at UCLA, which, as you know, is a major liver transplant hospital. So very kind of heavily weighted in IO and hepatobiliary. And then from there, my wife and I both have family in Rhode Island. So we, uh, we came back and I actually uh, took up my uh, initial career with the group that trained me right here in Rhode Island at Brown. In the midst of my sort of IR profession, I did serve as the division chief for about four years, just up to shortly before my departure. During that time, I was really heavily focused on interventional oncology, and we had a, a really good tumor ablation program from the start. It was actually founded by Damien Dupuy. And, you know, as he sort of transitioned on, I took over that clinic and I sort of rebranded it as an interventional oncology division where we started bringing the vascular treatments in as well and sort of, you know, doing sort of a, a larger scope assessment of combination therapies for patients and making sure that we were heavily integrated with all of the neighboring transplant hospitals because Brown in and of itself is not a transplant hospital per se. So... When you're practicing I.O. and you're out in the tertiary hospital realm, but you're not a transplant hospital, you have to have, you know, very strong communication with the systems that are providing transplant services. So a lot of that building the I.O. division was making sure that we had those relationships. I had a fantastic team. And, you know, that's really where I put most of my effort in my uh, professional training. So working with uh, mostly liver cancer patients in I.O. therapies at Brown. Sounds like it was a great program. There's a couple of guys in my group who trained under you, Andrew Marshall and uh, Vincent Chu. Oh, yeah. Those guys, great, great. Great, great guys. Love those and, guys. And yeah, they, yeah, they speak highly of you and they're taking that training and they brought it down here to Dallas. And, and both of those guys, what's unique about Brown is they get the stroke training as well. 
And so I know those guys have been involved in building a stroke program down here. So yeah, I just wanted to throw that out there as well. Those guys speak really highly of, of training under you at Brown. It's great to hear. But yeah, so let's talk a little bit about what brought you where you are today with basically taking a break from clinical medicine and starting this company, Pure Vita Labs. Tell us, let's jump into that that origin story. Absolutely. It is, it's It's kind of interesting. You know, I mean, you, you sort of go through life and you never really know where it's going to take you. But, you know, as I mentioned, I, I was very heavily involved in the interventional oncology practice, you know, and that was the bulk of my patient experiences. So, you know, within that clinic, um, especially with liver cancer, anyone who treats HCC patients knows that you really do become more or less a sort of primary hub of clinical care for those patients. You know, you do have medical oncologists that are involved, but a lot of times they, they kind of help you manage medical issues, but you are really sort of orchestrating the treatment plan and the follow-up. And patients, they come to you with questions. And, you know, in the cancer realm, obviously the cannabis movement, the legalization movement has been ongoing. It's relatively recent, but it is really picking up speed. And around 2016, when it really started, the legalization movement really started to pop, I had several patients that were asking me questions about medicinal cannabis. I really didn't know what to tell them. I mean, this isn't something you get taught in medical school. I didn't know much about the endocannabinoid system, mainly because it was just recently discovered within the last 20 years, but it wasn't taught to me. So I felt frustrated in not being able to give them solid advice on how to go about selecting the right product for what they wanted to use it for. And also in just sort of entertaining the conversation, you know, I mean, my initial instinct was, oh God, how can cannabis at all be medicinal? You know what I mean? Like, you know, look, truth be told, this is legal in Rhode Island now. And, you know, look, looking back on my life and in the exposure that I had to cannabis, it was this really unstructured experience where, you know, there wasn't really any control over it. And, and most of the time you saw people just getting high, you know, and I was like, well, I guess I kind of get it. You know, if cancer patients want to feel high and it improves their quality of life, then all right, I'll, I'll support it. But bottom line is I really didn't know what I was talking about and I didn't understand it. So I started doing a lot of my own research. I started reading about the basic science behind what we know about cannabinoids and terpenes and how they interact with the human body and various organ systems to sort of maintain homeostasis. And in the course of my research, I actually started to change my opinion. You know, from a scientific standpoint, I actually realized, look, like there is a molecular basis here that makes sense for a lot of the medicinal benefits behind cannabis, a lot of the ones that have been sort of proclaimed. There's actually research that has been done in humans up until about the 19, early 1970s, when it really the kibosh was put on it with the Controlled Substances Act. So there's a lot out there. And as I started to educate myself, I became a little more fluent in my conversation with patients. And they started telling me about their experiences in the medicinal cannabis industry. And I realized that this whole industry is it's sort of a mess. There are safety issues. You know, a lot of these cannabis products, they have to be produced in a way where there aren't contaminants introduced, where, you know, patients ingesting them are going to cause harm to themselves. There's really no guidance. You know, when these patients walk into a medicinal dispensary, there isn't a lot of science behind, you know, the advice that they're being given on how to choose the right product. And I will use one example that really sort of was the tipping point for me. I had a patient that was sort of very dear to me. Uh, he was a, an ex-physician, you know, older guy in, in his 80s, but very spry, energetic, uh, totally with it, you know, very conversant, very intelligent. And 
he wanted to try medicinal cannabis as my IO treatment sort of reached uh, the end of their lifespan where, you know, the side effects were getting a little unbearable and the tumor response wasn't as great. He started asking me questions about cannabis. And, and at that point, I had had a little bit of background. I said, you know, look, I think based on your symptoms, this is something that might benefit you. You know, there's not a lot of hard science behind it, but sure, you know, why not? Give it a try. Yeah. So, you know, he went to a dispensary and long story short, you know, he was looking for a product that would address certain symptoms that he ended up with sort of the opposite effect. He was very sedated, very subdued. Yeah. He wasn't interacting with his family. He was sleeping a lot. And it, it really, until the time that he passed, it didn't hit the mark on what yeah. the intent was. And I think that if he had better guidance, it would have been a different experience. So I had sort of had it knowing the, how the industry is, is sort of evolving here and looking at all the issues with inaccuracy and labeling. And it just dawned on me that uh, this all has to start with the labs. You know, if we're going to clean up this space and we're going to make sure that products are safe and that there's actually enough information available for patients to choose the right product for the symptoms, for the ailments that they have, then it's got to start with cleaning up the practices on the laboratory front. And so, hence the story behind Purevita Labs. You know, in Rhode Island, we're a very small market. I saw this blue ocean opportunity where the dominant testing that was being performed for cannabis, it was sort of, um, it wasn't very structured at the time. There weren't regulations in place, but it was being performed by an environmental testing lab. And there are subtleties and, you know, sort of unique aspects of cannabis testing that the chemists that do it on a regular basis will tell you this is unlike many of the other substances that are commonly tested, where the process by which you process the, the sample to get it in a testable form, that can change the chemical composition if you add any sort of heat. So, you know, it was a very complex area and uh, myself and another physician who had experienced similar issues with dealing with patients and, and feeling very frustrated at not being able to guide them appropriately, we found a PhD chemist that had particular experience and expertise in the cannabis realm, which is rare. And the three of us together, we started this lab. You know, we started it in Rhode Island as a phase one to sort of clean things up and get the medicinal cannabis industry back on track. So those are your co-founders, right? The other physician exactly. and then the yes. PC. How did you guys know each other? You know, the typical story with uh, my physician co-founder, we became friends because we have kids that are the same age and, yeah. you know, just sort of in hanging out and, and you know, look, it's life's about networking and very smart guy, sort of a, an entrepreneurial mind too. He was in private practice and, and had, you know, really sort of built urgent care networks and then um, yeah. had some experience with VC. And, you know, we started talking about this problem and how we would attack it. And the main thing was we were two physicians, but we didn't really know much about the analytical chemistry behind cannabis. So when it, it was sort of serendipity that we found our other co-founder, it was like, you know, he fell out of the sky and we said, well, geez, yeah. now, now we can really do this. So let's, let's start figuring out how we're going to do it. Let's form a, a company here. Let's ideate, let's raise some money and, and let's get this thing going. Knowing that, that our chemist was going to be an integral part of, you know, that phase one and getting this lab up and running and doing things correctly. Yeah. So that's so interesting. So were you guys just kind of talking about it socially at like, you know, soccer games yeah. and stuff or what? Yeah. I mean, that's exactly it. You know, I started talking about, oh, you know, geez, like it's so frustrating. I get cancer patients that ask me a lot of questions about medical cannabis and, you know, this is here. It's approved. It was legal in Rhode Island from a medicinal standpoint, but I'm like, you right. know, they're telling me that this market is a mess, that they really have no, I'm like, this is nothing like 
medicine where a physician hands a prescription to a patient and it's a specific drug at a specific dose and there are instructions there. It's not like that in the cannabis industry. It's not like that yet. So is he a a primary care doc? You said he had some urgent care centers? Okay. Yep. Primary care, private practice. And uh, obviously one of the aspects of his practice building was focused really on urgent cares. And they had a really good model. They put a good system together and he actually sold that. So again, it was, you know, having a partner that was a physician that was entrepreneurial really kind of got me to start thinking outside the box. Yeah, because you come from the academic side where you you had more of the I.O. knowledge and had the direct patient contact and experience to know that these patients could use this. And he came in from more, I guess, a business side, but also he probably as a primary care doc has some patients who go to him oh, for yeah. medicinal cannabis and had some experience there too. Yeah, so it for sounds arthritis like a great fit. and, you know, all sorts of things. So, I mean, yeah. it's actually, it's it's very, very prevalent out there. And, you know, the trick is getting patients to admit that they actually use it. And now if you're registered as a medical patient, obviously that information is out there, but there are a lot of people that source their cannabis on the illicit market and they use it for medicinal purposes. So again, you know, it's widespread and and there was commonality there in understanding where the problem was. So the two of us started really just researching deep what dive. the state yeah. of affairs was. Yeah. And and it really uncovered a lot of dirt on this industry that we're like, geez, you know, there's got to be a better way. And that was why we got started. Well, I'm so curious. I'm always curious about how like people kind of meet up, match up, align in their vision. And then also you guys realized, okay, we can cover this from a clinical standpoint and even maybe a business standpoint, but we really need the scientist here to contribute to this. And so how did you go about seeking out your PhD? And sorry, I, we, I've, I didn't catch his name. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so my, my, um, my physician co-founder partner is Dr. Jonathan Martin and Stuart Proctor is our PhD analytical chemist. And, you know, it's kind of ironic, but, <laughs> you know, John being a primary care physician was sort of onboarding a new patient doing his full yeah. history and physical and was yeah. going through that social history that, <laughs> you know, you almost glance over and he said, so what do you do for work? And, you know, he he said, oh, I'm a, I'm a chemist. So yeah, well, what aspect of chemistry? Well, I've been in the cannabis realm for quite a while. And then he was like, wow. oh God, took the white coat off, you know, yeah. closed the door, said, look, I, oh, I, I, this is, I don't want to transcend the professional nature of this, this encounter, but I, I do want to talk to you a little bit about this. So he spent some time with him and, and that was sort of how the conversation and the dialogue got started. At the wow. time, you know, Stuart was, was actually working in sales for one of the biggest analytical instrument manufacturers that is being used in the cannabis industry. So part of his job was going around and helping people set up infrastructure-wise, these labs, these cannabis labs, because it was really starting to be an area of focus in the industry. Not a lot of investment going into it, but definitely markets demonstrating that there was a need. So yeah. we we wow. really, it was almost serendipity. And, you know, this is, I'm going to say it again numerous times, but, you know, every successful entrepreneur has a story where they have a very strong vision, but there's always a stroke of luck. Always. Yes. And, you know, some of it is just recognizing opportunity and having your eyes and ears open at all turns. And it's tough for a physician because we are trained so differently. You know, we totally immerse ourselves in the basic science that we feel is going to be relevant to what we want to do in practice. And 
you know, it takes a lot to get to where you want to be. So you really are consumed by one circle, more or less, you yeah. know, as a physician. I think it's common. So this was a very good experience for me going through this and meeting these gentlemen. Well, I love hearing that story. It, is, it does sound like serendipity. I mean, if he had just glossed over his social history, like, you know, you may not have met him, you know? And right. so, <laughs> right. And, and so, absolutely. Like, if that was a radiologist doing that social history, it might have been never happened. But, Jokes aside, I, I love hearing stories like that. Like you said, just random luck that does go into success. So for those of us who have like limited knowledge about the cannabis, you know, medicinal cannabis industry, I'm in Texas, so we're not even close, right? I mean, you, I want you to kind of give us a lay of the land, uh, literally, in terms of we don't have to go state by state, but what are some of the states out there? And, and obviously, Rhode Island is more progressive in this, but can you give us an idea of like, are there any states where there's a good model that exists? And also just go over some nomenclature. You know, we talk about marijuana, weed, can, you know, cannabis. What is the correct nomenclature when we're talking to patients about this? Sure. I mean, I'll start with the nomenclature part because this is obviously, I think, a crucial element in trying to reverse stereotypes. Yeah. You know, obviously people call it pot, weed, grass, dope. You know, all, they're sort of derogatory type terms, but they have become commonplace. And, you know, the, the technical term for marijuana and hemp together is cannabis. Marijuana, by definition, is cannabis that has greater than 0.3% THC by weight in the okay. flower. Hemp, on the other hand, is minuscule amounts of THC, non-psychoactive, less than 0.3% by definition. So, you know, again, I mean, there are a lot of people, hemp and cannabis or hemp and marijuana rather are so intimately related. It's part of the reason why we have seen like the prohibition efforts develop and all of like the politics behind how cannabis became a scheduled one, which, you know, is, is far too extensive to go into in the scope of this talk. But, you know, we do have a uh, educational podcast series that we do through Bartholomew Town. It's called Inside Rhode Island Cannabis. And we devoted a whole episode to the history of cannabis as medicine and all of the events that led up to prohibition. And it's astounding. There's a ton of racism and xenophobia, you know, and political lobbying and special special interest groups that that had such influence in keeping this product or this this plant rather in this sort of really guarded scheduled one category. As a physician, it's it's a little disheartening, but it's eye-opening and it's worth anyone that has, you know, a curiosity over it. I encourage you to check out that podcast. But in any event, so that nomenclature wise, you know, we talk about marijuana, we talk about hemp. Cannabis is the the blanket term to cover both of them. And really it's based on THC potency. This industry is still so new that I wouldn't say that any one state has gotten it entirely right so far, but collectively there's a lot of progress being made and there are much better ways to do this, but we hope to sort of establish this ideal model of how a cannabis market should function right here in Rhode Island. It's a small market. It's a small state. But the opportunity for big impact in that setting is really the reason why we chose to focus our efforts on this market. I'll give you an example. So the regulations around how cannabis is grown, tested, processed, labeled, packaged, and presented to the consumer for retail, those all vary slightly from state to state. The lab testing is variable. I would say that in Rhode Island, we have some exemplary pieces of legislation or the regulations that have been written are exemplary in certain ways where I think we are off on the right foot here. We're on the right track. And I'll give the example of representative sampling. 
right? So when you grow marijuana, it gets harvested and the dried flower gets trimmed and essentially loaded into these big Tupperware buckets or some other receptacle. And the state has designated in Rhode Island that a single harvest batch can't weigh more than 10 pounds. So you can imagine you've got this, you know, sort of uh, three by two Tupperware container full of bud and it weighs 10 pounds and that's one batch. Well, in order to test that, you need to get a representative sample of that batch. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine that as flower grows on these plants, the closer the flower is to the light source, the more potent the cannabinoids are going to be in that flower. Ah, interesting. So when you mix it all together, it's a very heterogeneous mixture. So you start getting into statistics. There is a way to randomly sample with the right number of increments and the right size of each increment to get a statistically relevant sample of that harvest batch that is representative with a 95 degree confidence interval of what the overall content of that product is. In Rhode Island, the legislators had recognized that, the Department of Health had recognized that, and they said, we're going to require that the lab, the third-party lab, go to the facility and actually perform the random sampling of the product to make sure that the test sample is representative, yeah. as opposed to in some markets where the cultivators are allowed to just drop the, the sample off. Yeah. And they tend to favor the highest buds on the plant with the highest potency THC, because that is unfortunately a metric that's being used to drive financial profit in the industry now. So you can imagine that you know the Rhode Island way presents a much more accurate label to the consumer sure. than some of the other markets out there where you've got an overinflated potency level or you've got variability in what's written on the label and you get this sort of inconsistent experience from one episode to the next of use. Again, there's no state that's doing it perfectly, but we are learning as all states are evolving together. And what we're moving toward is a platform of standardization. We as a lab believe that we do need to standardize the way that labs go about their individual testing to make sure that these labels are accurate for the consumer. So that's kind of like, you know, the climate now of where we're at. It is still a little potluck, but we are making progress. And again, it, it's a matter of turning your eyes outside of the silo that you're working in within the state boundaries and looking at what other states are doing to make sure that you are incorporating the best science and the best methodology to give this industry a fighting chance. So the, yeah, it sounds like Rhode Island uh, is a great place to start this business off. And, you know, it's far better than probably like Texas or, you know, somewhere in the South where there, there's not as much, you know, clearly we're, we're behind the times down here. Just one more term that comes up often for physicians where we honestly, a lot of us don't really know how to even approach the concept of CBD oil you know, for, you know, topical stuff. Mm -hmm. Can you just touch on that real quick in terms of just going back to the nomenclature again? Sure. So CBD can be derived from marijuana and hemp, but the vast majority of CBD products out there on the market are actually extracts that are, you know, they're actually formed by pulling the active ingredient CBD from hemp. Because the Farm Act has been passed into law and, and hemp is now legal again, the CBD industry is not as regulated as the marijuana industry right yeah. now. So one of the problems with the CBD industry is that, you know, again, uh, let me digress a little bit. I'm going to hit the pause button. I will get back to it. But I want to talk to you about the importance of lab testing here yeah. and why it is important to make sure these products are safe. When flower, when this, this plant grows, it's a weed. And hemp, historically, and marijuana, has been used to cleanse soil 
of heavy metals, contaminated soil. A lot of places like, for example, um, if you've got a farm and the soil is loaded with a certain type of metal for whatever reason, you can plant hemp and extract that metal from the soil. So these things are like sponges, they're weeds, and they will soak up whatever environmental contaminant is out there. It will end up in the plant. And that's part of the reason why it's very important to test these substances. You know, cannabis in and of itself, the actual oils that are in the plant, in terms of a safety profile, I mean, it's way safer than something like alcohol. Yeah. But when you introduce contaminants into the plant, now you can actually really introduce health risks that otherwise wouldn't be there. So what do we test for? We test for a number of things. Obviously, we test for potency. We test for the cannabinoid profile. We test for all the other active ingredients so we can actually provide some information as to what the product's going to do. But on the safety side of things, we have to test for microbial contaminants that could end up in this, like mold which has been a big problem in the industry. We need to test for toxic metals, lead, arsenic, cadmium. There's a whole list of things we test for. You know, when you talk about extracts, where you're extracting the oil from the plant, what you basically do in that situation is you add a solvent. You know, you've really dissolved the oil from the plant matter. And that solvent could be ethanol, Or the more efficient way to do it is to use hydrocarbons like butane, propane, pentane, you know, all these things that you don't want to be residual in the product. So for extracts, vape cartridges, we test for residual solvents as well. And we also test for pesticides. So there's a number of things that cannabis needs to be tested for to make sure that it is pure and that it's safe. Now you get back to the CBD industry and because it's not as heavily regulated right now, The regulations for all hemp and hemp-related products is under the jurisdiction of the USDA. Now, this was rapidly legalized, and there's a little bit of a lag in resources and infrastructure on how that industry gets sort of policed and regulated right now. So what you're getting is a lot of hemp extracts for CBD products that aren't required to be tested for residual solvents. So if you buy something at like the gas station market, for example, you may be getting CBD oil, but you could be getting residual butane or pentane or some other solvent chemical that's in there that that you don't really want in there because there was no standard set that this had to be tested for. And when you put those chemicals into your lungs, that can actually cause damage. And we've seen this with the vape crisis. Let's talk about that. Definitely. I will definitely get into that. But, you know, the CBD market right now is a little bit of a Wild West show. So, you know, there are brands out there that are doing it very well. And I'll I'll lob one out there, not to be specific to any one brand, but Charlotte's Web is one that is known to have strict protocols on how they have their products tested. You know, they guarantee their consumers a certain level of safety. And again, you you do pay a little bit more for those products. But the point is that, you know, when safety is at stake, it, it is important. And that is also the importance of the lab testing. So... I wanted to, to back up a little bit, though, because you ta- you wanted a little bit of an overview on, on how the medicinal cannabis market works. And I will tell you that it may come as a little bit of a shock to a lot of people out there. Just because it's medicinal doesn't mean that there's strict oversight by a physician. Really, what these programs, what they do is they allow patients with qualifying diagnoses or conditions to actually get a permission card, a registration card to walk into one of these facilities and actually legally buy products for use. The physician, the only thing they do is basically sign off on the fact that these patients actually have this qualifying diagnosis. They will fill out paperwork and then, you know, the patient will register with the state program, probably pay a small fee and then get their registration card. But when they walk into the dispensary, 
they really only have the people on the dispensary staff to talk to for guidance. I mean, their physician may be knowledgeable and they may give them some advanced tips on on what to pick out, what to look for. But you can imagine that this market is very different than what we're used to in medical practice, you know, where patients are wildly left to their own uh, actions here in in trying to pick the right product. And a lot of times it, it can miss the mark. So in order to really harness the therapeutic potential of this, part of what we're doing as a lab is we're not only ensuring that products are safe and accurately labeled, but we are also working to educate and guide the consumer to make more intelligent choices in the marketplace, to actually pair them with a product that is most likely to give them the intended benefit that they're looking for based on molecular science and based on the lab data. So I don't want to veer too far off here. We did start talking about the vape crisis. We can get into that a little bit, but I'll let you sort of direct where you want this yeah, to I go. Yeah, I mean, Jason, just a, a side, a, you know, a personal story, you know, my dad, I, I think I was telling you about this before, but he's he was suffering from uh you know, stage four lung cancer. And, you know, he had kind of had it with the opiates for his chronic pain. You know, he had scheduled nets and had chronic pain and the prognosis was limited, right? So he wanted to spend time, value, you know, quality time. This goes back to what you were saying about your personal friend, but he wanted to spend more time awake with family. So, you know, he was in Ohio and I took him to one of these bud shops and it's a very well-established, people were very nice, treated him very well. But when it came to making a decision on what was going to actually help him in his case, I mean, they had a whole menu and everything. I was impressed by that. And, you know, they had some percentages on the menu, but my dad had no idea what he was looking at, you know, and the, the person had no idea what my dad's condition was. He just saw that he was on oxygen and was sick and maybe needed something to help. And so I think that much like your friend, he ended up being a little bit disappointed in what he went home with because he'd never ended up using it. Maybe he tried it once and then realized, well, I'm sleeping the same as I was on the morphine, right? And so I, th right. I, I feel like from watching this experience, like what, everything that you say makes total sense, right? And even for, from the physician perspective, education, like you guys are doing two major things, right? You're testing, which is essential for safety and consistency and accurately labeled so that patients can have a consistent experience but also educating physicians, the healthcare community, as well as patients on what these products do, because we're oblivious. You know, I said that yes. at the beginning, we're completely yep. oblivious. And so docs need to know if they're going to prescribe it and let the patient go to see one of these bud tenders, the docs kind of have to steer them. Hey, you might want to try this product because this is what the feedback I'm getting. And also getting feedback from their patients when it is successful. Why was it successful? And so all that data collection is huge. And so, you know, the vape crisis is what it is. I mean, people have read the news. I want to get into the data collection that you guys are going to be doing with this. And so let's talk about your proprietary direct-to-consumer data interface platform that seems like so much potential with that. So let's jump into that. Of course. You know, because it's proprietary, it, it hasn't yet been launched in Rhode Island. It's coming soon. So there's only so much that I can say about it. But I will say this, that the general concept is that we use our knowledge as physicians of human biology and the molecular science that is known about how the various active ingredients in cannabis interact with the human body. We combine that with the laboratory data to sort of pair an individual consumer with the ideal cannabis product for their intended effect yeah. or experience. And let me just sort of liken it to something that people are probably more familiar with. Obviously, the wine industry I will make one blanket statement that we talk a lot about medicinal cannabis. 
I would argue that recreational cannabis and medicinal cannabis do have a significant amount of overlap. There are a lot of people that use alcohol or cannabis or whatever for self-medication purposes to alleviate stress, anxiety, you know, sort of unwind, relax after like a long, stressful day. There's a lot of intent behind why people choose to use these products. And because of the various spectrum of effects that the chemical composition of these products can cause in downstream in the user, there is an element of choice there. Our platform really is designed to take the experience that you want to have and pair it with the product that is most likely to help you achieve that mind state or physical sensation that would sort of make that experience that you want to have more relevant or enjoyable. So, you know, on the recreational realm, this platform, that's really where it's going to start. But the medicinal side of specifics in how we can guide patients with specific illnesses towards specific products as the FDA sort of loosens some of their restrictions, as we deschedule cannabis from its Schedule One category, we will be allowed to make definitive claims based on evidence that this product is helpful for treating this particular aspect of this disease state. Right now, we have to be very, very vague. You know, hey, you know, if you're having trouble sleeping, this product can help yeah. for that. You know, it's not this product treats, you know, some specific sleep disorder or insomnia. You can't say something like that because that is an FDA regulated right. statement. So, you know, the platform that we're designing here is really using the data. Like you said, it's aggregating data from the laboratory side and from the consumer behavior side and synthesizing that data through an algorithmic engine that looks at the chemical profile of the product that someone is considering using and tells them how likely this product is to pair with their intended mood or experience that they want to have. Very, very powerful platform. And I would argue that, you know, look, we're not the only ones trying to do this. I think that our unique opportunity here is that we have realized that no one's really going to be able to solve this problem in isolation. Physicians alone aren't going to solve it. Tech gurus alone aren't going to solve it. Biologists aren't going to solve it. But together, together, we can actually combine skill sets to actually create a system that works. And that's where we're going with our model. We are collaborating and we are really designing a platform that has the ability to scale even beyond the Rhode Island market. Yeah. But the reason why we chose Rhode Island to start is because we have this reputation here of being a craft cannabis market where a lot of the products that are being grown or produced have these unique names. So you can't go look these things up on like Leafly or some other platform that, you know, goes on strain name that tries to tell you, hey, you know, every product with this strain name is going to cause this effect based on 3000 users that have used a product with the same name and blah, blah, blah. The bottom line is you don't know that all those products were the same. You don't know that their chemical composition was the same. So by pulling in the right pieces of data, we can actually create a much more powerful recommendation engine that learns as it goes. And that is really, that's the, the intent here is that we are going to launch this in a craft cannabis market to help guide consumers in a realm where products are, you know, there's a bunch of alien names out there. Right. And we're then going to move that from the recreational realm to more of a medicinal realm when the feds loosen some of the restrictions and when we're able to do that. Yeah, that sounds smart. I mean, you, you work with what you got, right? In terms of information and data, people are using recreationally. It sounds, you said, it learns as it goes. That sounds very AI. 
are you guys attaching that to it? Like, you know, is there like an AI algorithm? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I, <laughs> AI to me is, you know, it's a sort of a nebulous yeah. concept. I mean, I, I get it from a, a definitional standpoint, but how it actually gets programmed and everything, it's, it's very interesting. And, you know, I'm certainly not a tech guru, so I can't elaborate on that further, but it's all about pattern recognition. And by recognizing patterns and interfacing with various data input mechanisms, you can actually process and synthesize multiple data points in complex ways. And again, it's, this is the tech side of taking the medicinal science the biological science, the individual consumer, you know, ontology and, and coming up with an accurate and precise recommendation for yeah. an individual. Our biology is, is different. You know, our endocannabinoid systems are different from individual to individual. Different people have different sensitivities to these products. So we talk about first standardizing labels and knowing what's in the product. And then step two is, well, what's your ideal dose? And, you know, I didn't mention this earlier, but one of the things that was sort of a revelation to me as I was researching cannabis is the vast majority of medicinal patients that use cannabis, they don't want to get high from the substance. They want to reap the benefits of the active ingredients in there from an anti-inflammatory standpoint or a pain relief standpoint, but they don't want to be so mentally gorked out that they can't interact in society and function. And, you know, that sort of stereotypical picture of your classic stoner, that doesn't apply to medicinal patients, the vast majority of them. And I feel like, you know, there are, there are stereotypes here that are, they're holding the industry back. They're, you know, a burden for the individuals that actually do get a benefit from these products. And I think that as a society, we need to start educating ourselves, learning more and, and embracing the fact that this is a whole new personal health and wellness revolution here that is taking hold. Yeah. And I honestly believe that. And, you know, just to touch again on setbacks, we did kind of gloss over the whole vape crisis, but that was a huge setback, right? To the whole industry because of all the black market stuff that was going on, it was causing the pulmonary fibrosis and acute respiratory syndromes that are happening in kids. Can you just share a little bit about that and how that was such a setback, how that's caused some of this stigma? Sure. Absolutely. And, and honestly, this ties into how we really got started as a business here. I mean, you know, raising capital is, is uh, you know, it's a huge pain no matter how you slice it. And, you know, for us, the real issue was that we couldn't take this incredibly complex scientific idea that was going to be built out in phases and present it to a potential private investor in a sort of two-minute elevator pitch. Right. But when the vape crisis hit, it hit right on cue for us. It actually highlighted, it was the perfect example of why laboratory testing is needed yeah. as sort of a phase one approach to what we really wanted to do in this industry. So we were able to capitalize on that. And what happened in the vape crisis really was you had a bunch of unregulated product that was, you know, it's now been determined that, you know, it was about 90% of it was sourced on the illicit market. So it wasn't tested. And, you know, when you're dealing with extracts, so they were taking extracted cannabis oil and they were diluting it. They were using a cutter and vitamin E acetate was the sort of oily substance that they decided they were going to use to dilute this oil out and make it go further for the benefit of, you know, the profit. The problem is that when you take vitamin E acetate and you heat it and you inhale it into the lungs, your body cannot really break it down, evacuate and clear it 
the same way that you can with pure cannabis oil. So this vitamin E oil form was really accumulating in the alveoli in the lungs in these patients after prolonged use. And they essentially were presenting with lipoid pneumonias, where it was an ARDS type picture. And doctors didn't know whether it was infectious, uh, inflammatory, you know, all they could do is put you on a ventilator. But if you can't oxygenate well enough, you know, you start going into multi-system organ failure and, and you can die. And all of this, what it did was once we figured out that it was vitamin E acetate and that this was something that was being artificially introduced into these substances and they were being sort of infiltrated into the market, that was a real big aha moment for the cannabis testing industry. Yeah. And a lot of legislators at that point said, okay, cannabis testing absolutely has to happen. We need to make sure that if we're going to allow this, these products have to be safe. Yeah. And so, yes, it was the illicit market that made the huge mistake, but it benefited the legal market because it actually painted this picture in the minds of consumers that, look, you know, like I should be choosing products that are slightly more expensive just because I know that they're safe and they've been tested. Right. As right. opposed to taking a chance on something from your like your local dealer. So that's how the vape crisis really played into our scenario. But you know, it's big. Yeah, it's kind of like moonshine, right? And uh, versus uh, getting some whiskey, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> getting your Jim Beam. Versus... <laughs> yeah, there are incredible parallels to you look at the history of the alcohol industry and how everything transpired to where it's become sort of integrated into society like it is today. And yeah. I honestly believe with every fiber of my being that this is exactly what is happening with cannabis right now. And people are going to learn that this is not this scary substance. You know, it was just in the past, it was just, there was no way to control the use of it. Right. There wasn't lab testing. You didn't know what the THC potency was in the products you were using. You didn't know what other ingredients were in there. It was, you know, there was a joint that was rolled up. It got passed around in a circle and most people sort of oversaturated their CB1 receptors and they felt sort of disoriented or they lost touch with reality, that sort of uncontrolled experience of being stoned. And that's how they associated the cannabis effect. Yeah. And now we have technology. We have much better ways to administer a dose in a measured out incremental fashion where we can really use those pharmacokinetic relationships and hone in on what the appropriate dose is to maximize the positive attributes, but minimize the negative side effects. And that's where the chemistry and the biology and the molecular science really comes in. But we're there as an industry. We are, that is the issue right now is making sure that we offer products that can give the consumer a consistent, predictable experience. Yeah, you're right. I mean, you look back at what happened post-prohibition, basically standardizing how alcohol is made and the safety protocols and everything and distribution. You're right. There's a whole history lesson there that I'm sure you could take from alcohol. Yep, absolutely. So- Starting a new business is expensive, especially a, a lab. Uh, and it sounds like you guys have, you know, there, there's a lot that goes into it. Employees, you know, equipment, everything. How did you guys fund it at the beginning? It was it bootstrapping, friends and family, crowdfunding, business partners, VC? Yeah. So, you know, like every other business in the cannabis industry, we didn't have access to traditional bank funding. You know, most banks are FDIC insured. The federal government backs them. And because this is a federally illegal substance, they were worried about risking, you know, their insurance coverage. So they weren't willing to make those investments on cannabis businesses. So, you know, fortunately, there are some smaller banks like local credit unions that have actually embraced the industry and are providing financial services now. But in the beginning, we couldn't go to a bank and say, hey, you know, we need three million bucks to get a lab up and running. 
So we started off in the sort of private equity realm. And what we found was because in the beginning, my network wasn't all that extensive, most of the private investors that we had access to were really real estate type deal investors. And it's very tough when you're dealing with a startup that has a huge amount of growth potential when you're trying to actually assess from the beginning before you've even started generating revenue, what the business is worth. So if someone's going to put up $3 million, how much of this business do they actually want? And, you know, as a founder, you really, in an intro round, you don't want to give up much more than 20 to 25% of your business. So we were working on a $10 million valuation and it was very tough to a real estate investor to explain the concept, get them to understand the science and buy into the value of what it is that we were looking to do. So, you know, long story short, we ended up going with friends and family. And, you know, we decided to use the convertible note as an investment vehicle. I think it's a very good tool for startups, particularly ones in our situation. And essentially what it is, is you take on a, uh, essentially it's a structured loan from an investor. There's a term on it, usually about three years or so at a decided upon interest rate. And what happens is it allows the company, because you haven't really formally established a valuation, it allows the company that amount of time for that term, like three years or so to build and grow and start generating the revenue to really prove what that overall value, the equity would be worth. So this convertible note is essentially a warrant. And at the time that it converts, investors have the option of pulling out the initial investment plus interest earned, you know, compound interest, or they can roll that investment and interest earned into equity in the company. They can use it as an equity purchase. And usually there's a discount that's offered to that investor as an additional upside at the time of conversion. So it's a very, very effective tool, especially when you can't come to agreement on what the valuation of a company is in the beginning. And that's what we used. And we were ultimately able to raise about $3 million from friends and family. And it took the vast majority of that to get a lab structurally up and running. I mean, we have over a million dollars worth of uh, equipment in there. But, you know, again, it's scientists, it's high salaries. It's, this is a very high overhead cost enterprise. But, you know, we were lucky. You know, I mean, I obviously in my career and in my sort of locale here, there are a lot of people that have seen what I've accomplished and, and they know what I'm capable of. And I have such a strong vision here that, you know, this to them was like, you know, if I'm going to bet on anybody, I'm going to bet on you. And I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for all of those people because they gave me the opportunity to really sort of see a vision through, which is, again, I mean, it's a sense of freedom that, you know, you just can never experience in any other way. So yeah, convertible note, and that's where we are now. We're about a year and a half into that term. Well, that's a that's a great segue into my next question is, let's talk a little bit about your decision to step away from Clocal Medicine and follow the startup journey 100%. You talk about, you know, when you went, you kind of took that leap, people are investing in you, you're investing in yourself. Do you have any regret leaving? Like, do you miss Clocal Medicine? A, how long ago did you leave? And B, was there a void or is there still a void that you feel like is <laughs> clinical medicine left yeah. behind? <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny. Um, you know, you, you talk about how well this news sort of resonates with various professionals yeah. that I work with on a regular basis. And there are a lot of eyebrows being raised, yeah. you know, yeah. you know, we, we just sort of are emerging from this pandemic that those of us in the audience that are IRs, I mean, like I, you know, I was, I mean, you, you definitely felt that pandemic. I mean, we were on the front lines. We were probably doing more 
because we were minimally invasive than we had in the past. So, you know, just the the whole process of going through that pandemic, it did take a toll on a lot of physicians. But that being said, there were eyebrows that were raised as far as my motives behind why I was switching this up. It's very tough to get people to embrace the same vision that I have because of the level of understanding that I have acquired into the science behind this. So I think that there are definitely people that are skeptical, but honestly, like what I would say is, I mean, where, how do I want to say this without, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't have any regrets. Yeah. I have zero regrets. Right. In fact, I would say that I am uh, working just as hard, if not harder than I ever have, but I'm living my best life. Good. I mean, this yeah. is really seeing a dream take root and grow and feeling, you know, some element of control over how I budget my time. I am always going to be all in and I'm going to demonstrate the same level of work ethic that I always have, but at least this way I get to decide when I want to turn it on and off and there's more balance in my life. So, you know, quite honestly, I don't have regrets, but I do miss some of that clinical aspect of medicine. I mean, I did enjoy it. I mean, there was no problem with the field or what I was doing. I just felt like this was such an opportunity and the opportunity was now to really capitalize on it that it was enough for me in my risk-averse nature to really want to just take the leap. And I did. So as of December 1st of last year, I have gone full-time with this company. You know, I'm not really that involved in the basic science of the lab, but I am involved in moving phase two forward with the consumer guidance platform and the tech initiative and all that. So it all worked out pretty well with timing. It was sort of a rapid jump, but it just made sense. And I'm, again, no regrets. We probably could have a follow-up conversation in, in a year or two, and I can give you an update. I mean, you know, look, nothing's for certain, yeah. but it, it's yeah. exciting. It's a feeling of being alive that, you know, as an entrepreneur, that is, that I, I never really... I never really got to experience that much beyond the first few years of, of going into IR where things were still new and exciting. It kind of got to the point where it was like, you know, look, like I have my skill set, you know, I feel that I'm good at what I do, but the challenges were becoming few and far between. And for me, I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit of a dopamine addict, you know, I, I kind of need that rush of feeling like I've accomplished something. And this is a perfect scenario for me. It's just a more balanced life. Well, one of the great things about this innovation show is we've had, you know, a, a good number of physician entrepreneurs on at this point. And we always like to ask them about this because some just cut back to clinical part-time clinical, and then, you know, pursue the startup. Some are doing locums. In my case, I just do locums while I run back table. We recently had Anissa Majid on talking about, we're talking about getting an MBA, if that's worthwhile, you know, as we start these startup companies. And, you know, everybody's different. But for her, she said, you know, the great thing that she said was, look, I was at halftime in life. Kind of like what you're saying, like, my clinical practice became kind of just wrote. It was just automatic. There was nothing there. The challenges weren't there like they were in the first, my first years. And so I wanted new challenges. And I, I love the concept of a halftime and kind of reevaluating and saying, okay, there's an opportunity here to completely pivot. I can always go back, but let's try something new. And then it also just comes down to what gives you energy, right? Because if you wake up every day excited about Pure Vita Labs, that, like you said, like that just keeps you going versus 
we all know clinical is a grind. And if the energy is not there, then you're not doing yourself or your patients any favors. So I think that every individual is different. And some people like to keep one foot in clinical medicine because it helps with whatever the application is. You know, we had Chris Mancy from viz.ai on, and he, you know, he's a neuro, trained neurosurgeon and he started viz and never turned back, right? Because he thought, I need to put 100% of my time and energy into this. And this has much greater impact than my clinical practice. So I'm going to go full speed on this. And so it sounds very similar, Jason. I mean, everybody's different, but you know, I love hearing that because it's also hard to straddle both. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's also, it's very difficult for physicians. I mean, it takes so much time and effort and sacrifice and, and knowledge to get to where you are that you sort of develop this sense of, well, I have this skill set and it's very valuable, but it's only valuable in this space. And to actually look outside of the box and see another area where you can go in and implement change. You can, you can help shape the future of an industry with your specific skill set. You then have the element of, you know, how much risk am I willing to take? You know, I mean, look, I mean, most of us, you finish your medical education, you have a lot of debt and the type of money that you want to make, you need to make to pay back that debt and live the way you want to feel comfortably. It's tough to do that in another area of profession. And I think that this sort of doctor trap mentality does hold a lot of people that have great ideas back. And like I said, you know, look, life is about networking. It's about serendipity in a way and chance events. And the people that you meet that inspire you will push you one way or the other. And I was fortunate to have an idea that only got stronger with time and thought. And there were enough people around me that were mentors and gave me the support and the guidance. You know, look, I, I'm not, I don't have an MBA. I'm, I'm not a business major. A lot of it is common sense, but there are elements of business operation that I don't have in my repertoire. And I knew I didn't have the time to pursue an MBA to get that degree, but you actually don't need to. It's about bringing in the right skill sets and forming the right team. And if you really do have an idea and you have a vision as an entrepreneur and you can see a pathway to getting that vision to grow and come to fruition, if you can assemble the right team and you can surround yourselves with enough skill sets that make you feel comfortable, you should go for it. And again, I'm, I'm just saying that because I feel like, you know, you do get stuck in an environment in traditional medicine where you don't have control and it does weigh on you. Whether or not you acknowledge it or not, you know, there are frustrating parts of medical practice. I mean, there's frustration in everything, but you are not just a, a man or a woman with a skill set and able to practice the way that you see fit. There are lots of rules and requirements and paperwork and all the other stuff that really kind of drag down why you actually went into medicine to begin with. And if you are like that, if you are a person that, that is starting to feel that way and you do have an idea, explore it. Don't be afraid. Don't sit there and say, oh, you know what? I have my skill set and it's only applicable here. If you can bring it into a new domain, at least entertain it. Convince yourself that it's time to make the leap if you're starting to feel unhappy. Yeah, I think those are inspiring words. I mean, you know, I think that there's a lot of docs out there who may not even have the financial restraints. I mean, clearly, if you're just out of training, you got a bunch of debt, that's a big risk. But if you're mid-career, mid-life, 
and feeling a little bit run down and you have an idea, I think that you'll realize how energizing it is to take that risk. And, and you'll find it's not that risky. It's actually, in some cases, even saving your life, you know, because <laughs> you might even be feel healthier. I noticed your whoop. I got a, I got a whoop as well. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, stuff like that, like that, what a, what an amazing startup, right? I mean, it's not even a startup anymore, but just what they've done with, with yeah. the health data and just a big step up, I think, from just the Apple Watch. How long have you had yours for? Going on two years now. Oh, okay. And and honestly, I mean, look, I, I've, I've learned a lot. I Let's tie this back into how people choose to use recreational substances to like self-medicate, right? I have noticed that even, you know, with alcohol, if I have, you know, a couple glasses of wine at dinner, my sleep is completely disrupted. I feel like I go to bed and I wake up and I slept soundly, but you know, most people that have had this experience know that you do run out of energy the next day. And you look at the REM and non-REM sleep patterns and alcohol is incredibly disruptive to sleep. I mean, it's essentially, you know, yet it's mainstream and it's accepted in society. And there are various cannabinoids that actually help with REM and non-REM cycles. And again, I mean, part of this is uh, I'm a walking experiment in my own personal wellness. I have turned a corner over the last six months. I feel like I am more healthy now than I ever had been. And again, you know, when I talk to physicians about this, the one thing I will say is, look, it's, it's very easy to be so involved in what it is you do to meet the demands of your profession that you start to let your own personal health go south. And you really need to take care of yourself to be at your best to take care of everybody else. And, you know, again, it's about striking a balance, but, you know, it's just random thought, but the whoop strap has been very influential for me in tracking my own data and figuring out what works for me and what doesn't. I, I feel you know, the same recovery, way. Yeah. Strain. I found the same way with the alcohol and the sleep, two drinks. And I was talking to a buddy of mine. He's a, he's a marathon guy. And he was like, man, I cap it at two drinks, anything over that. And I, I don't sleep as well. My recoveries are crap. You know, and it's really eye-opening, actually. Yeah, how alcohol affects your sleep, how important sleep is, you know, and this the strain thing. I mean, I guess this turned into a bit of a plug for Whoop, but I've really enjoyed it, and I find it I find it useful in sort of tracking my personal health. Yeah, it's a fantastic company. I mean, I do think it takes a certain personality to really appreciate the value in it. For physicians, it's it's awesome. You know, I mean, where most of us are kind of data and science geeks and, you know, this type of stuff, when you, you can sort of start to hone in on cause and effect, it's powerful stuff. But, you know, again, I mean, we started talking about, you know, this sort of personal wellness revolution. And I, I do think that the time is, is ripe right now for cannabis. And, you know, look, I mean, uh, people that are still doubters, you know, the vast majority of medications that we use right now in the pharmaceutical realm are derivatives or isolates of molecules that are produced by plants. There is a, a lot of science behind the plant-based diet in how it can improve a lot of ailments that you know are commonly suffered by humans. Inflammation has sort of become a part of our lives. It's it's in our food sources, our mass manufactured foods. You know, just the production process or preservatives that are added to improve shelf life. I mean, gluten is a good example. You know, it causes inflammation in most people. There's a book out there called Wheat Belly. It's worth reading, but you start to realize that inflammation is the root of all evil. And when you look at plants in plant-based medicines. Most of the molecules produced by plants, particularly cannabis, are anti-inflammatory in nature. And if you can calm that inflammational process down in your body, you are going to be susceptible to fewer 
ailments that are, you know, inflammatory pain mediated, like arthritis, you name it. I mean, inflammation, it disrupts sleep, stress, you know, the persistently elevated cortisol levels and, you know, that sort of spiraling into metabolic instability. All of this is what we do to ourselves. And if we can utilize components that are, are natural and supplement with those components the same way that we supplement with vitamins and we can achieve a new balance, correct deficits where they exist, we can be much healthier. And there's a lot of science. We could talk for hours about the specifics behind the endocannabinoid system and how terpenes interact with various receptors. You know, I'll give you one example. Uh, linalool is uh, the major terpene that is found in lavender. And we know from aromatherapy research that Linalool has a calming, relaxing effect on the body. Terpenes are absorbed through the skin very effectively, but they're most effectively administered through inhalation. You know, they're the flavor and aroma compounds that help modulate that sort of THC experience. And we know now from a molecular basis that linalool does interact with the serotonin receptors in the brain. So there, there's certainly reason why these effects that we have seen in the aromatherapy realm they actually are occurring. You know, there's basic science there behind it. And the more you read and the more you uncover with cannabis, you will find those types of relationships. And it's interesting. But the main issue is that, you know, with plant-based medicines, the reason why they have sort of never really gained as much traction as the pharmaceuticals is that they are sort of, you know, these sort of whole plant experiences. You don't really know what every individual active ingredient is that's in there that's going to really truly cause that effect or whether it's more of an entourage effect where it's all of these things acting together. And honestly, like dosing has always been a problem with botanical medicines. How do you consistently deliver the same experience and make sure that the active ingredients are all in there and that you're giving that consumer that sort of predictable effect like you can with a pharmaceutical drug? You know, I mean, look, cannabis was available in, in pharmacies all the way up and through the early 1900s. You know, cannabis tinctures and oils were being used for treatment of a vast array of common household ailments. And, you know, again, all of that sort of prohibition type stuff that evolved, a lot of it being political, really kind of wiped that off the map. And now that we have more technology, we have better ways of administering these plant-based ingredients. And it's not all about THC. I, I will, I want to argue that until the cows come home, like, let's forget about this THC potency issue. It, it's destroying the industry. It's not all about getting high. It's about finding what's right for you in the right mixture, the right ratio of proportion of active ingredients and using that in a predictable way. That's the excitement of what I have over cannabis right now. That's why I see so much hope for this being a potentially a very impactful health and wellness measure that gets implemented into ordinary everyday life. I do think cannabis is going to leapfrog alcohol, particularly now that we're starting to see cannabis beverages and the technology behind how the oil-based cannabinoids are being held in suspension in an aqueous solution and how that dose gets delivered to the consumer effectively. That's all science and technology that's bringing us into that era. So people that enjoy sipping on a can, you're going to be able to get the same effect that you can get with alcohol, that relaxation effect in a small dose without the hangover, without the inflammation that you normally get from the alcohol. And I see a huge amount of promise here, and, and I, that's where we're headed as an industry. That would be amazing. And maybe in all, and without the intoxication, hopefully that uh, impedes certain things, you know, with driving. And But hopefully by that time, we'll have autonomous drivers anyway, so we won't have to worry about that. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. You never know. I mean, society is changing yeah, so yeah, quickly. Yeah. But you know, again, lots of lots of challenges ahead. Like I said, but you know, we are definitely on our way as an industry. I'm I'm very excited to be involved at this stage, and I just see a huge need for medical perspective, scientists uh, getting involved in in really sort of making this industry what it could be, destroying the stereotypes that have existed up until now, and you know, and that that's really what this is all about. Yeah. Well, Jason, that's a great place to put a pin in it. I really appreciate you coming on. Very inspiring what you're doing. Do you ever listen to The Drive with Peter Atia? I do, yes. I think you would be a great guest on that show. Because, uh, <laughs> you know, Peter's much smarter than I am. He could really geek out on this stuff with you. And I think that would be a, another good one. But uh, I appreciate you coming on. Anything, any final words for our audience before we jump off? One thing I did want to ask you, are you looking for investors for any physician investors out there? So right now we're focused on uh, launching our beta platform in Rhode Island, and we have some metrics around how we're going to analyze its impact in the market over the next 12 months. And then we're going to be pursuing a big Series A. So yes, it's in the near future. It's not immediately, but we are kind of running that endeavor in parallel. We're getting ready for it per se. But as far as like final thoughts, you know, I would just say I encourage everyone to sort of think outside the box, sort of try to break out of this stereotype, stop using words like pot, weed, dope, and start calling it cannabis or marijuana or, or hemp if you're referring to hemp. Like any substance, I mean, there's definitely potential for abuse here. It is intoxicating. But through knowledge and education, we can all learn about how it can be used properly for individual benefit on a very individual basis. So Check out our, our uh, we have an educational series podcast, not to promote that, but it's a Bill Bartholomew podcast called Inside Rhode Island Cannabis. We do a, a, some didactic type episodes there. We talk about the history of cannabis, very interesting stuff. Or, you know, I, I do send out some uh, informational tweets at Dr. Safe Cannabis. It's D-R-S-A-F-E Cannabis. And, you know, again, I mean, it's, uh, it, I'm early on here. I'm trying to get information out there. So it's just interesting stuff. And it's, it's all about just changing the perspective and not villainizing people who use cannabis for medicinal or, or even recreational, structured recreational purposes. Perfect. Well, we'll definitely help you with the social media stuff. When this posts, we'll be sure to tag you and get this information out there. Appreciate you coming on, Jason, as always. Thank you. Absolutely a pleasure. That wraps it up. Thanks for everybody for listening. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.